0: Thanks, Tim. I thought I'd start uh, with some autobiography, but before I get too far, uh, I should mention that I did speak with my parents about this. Uh, They're actually not here today. Um, They're on a trip, but I spoke with them this week, and I didn't want to disrespect them in any way, and just so you know that they are supportive of my comments, and I hope to to honor the, the, them in the tone of what I say as well. I grew up Anabaptist. Uh, my ancestry on both sides is Anabaptist. My grandfather and father were Mennonite pastors. Uh, I like being a Mennonite. My, my parents and tradition gave me the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, which I am very, very grateful for. But I do sometimes tell people playfully that I grew up in a confused Mennonite home. Uh, Because unlike the overwhelming majority of Anabaptists today and historically, my parents have been committed five-point Calvinists for years, uh, which made them, we'll say, unique in the Mennonite church. Uh, They went to Reformed conferences and they enjoyed themselves. Uh, So that'll tell you a little bit about them. So along with the gospel, I grew up with Anabaptist theology mixed with some Reformed theology but my view of baptism was Anabaptist. Anabaptismos is a Greek compound word of ana meaning re, and baptismos meaning baptism. Re baptism. Anabaptists strongly reject covenant infant baptism and re-baptize believers, professing believers, who had been already baptized as infants. And historically, Anabaptists accepted only the New Testament as the rule of faith for life and church practice. So I spent about 25 years of my life in a denomination that identified themselves by their rejection of covenant infant baptism, saw great discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments, and accepted only the New Testament as the rule of faith and church practice. In other words, I grew up in a theological tradition which denies essential doctrines of Reformed theology, and true historic Reformed theology is Covenant theology. Then I encountered Covenant theology in seminary. It changed my life. Flat out changed my life. Two things happened. Number one, I began to see Covenant theology in Scripture and was blown away by it. And number two, my lifelong Anabaptist view of baptism was being directly and biblically challenged and I was in crisis. Covenant theology blew me away. It was as if I lived in a theological house my entire life and one day found a new door that led to all kinds of exciting new rooms to explore. Covenant theology showed me biblical truths I hadn't seen before. Something else happened. Covenant theology threw me into crisis over baptism. I was hearing solid biblical arguments for covenant baptism. And I just just didn't know what to do with them. Uh, Baptism had huge implications for me personally. Where do I belong denominationally? Uh, Where should I be ordained? What church should I pastor? Uh, For around two years... I was conflicted. I, I, I consider myself trapped between two uh, conflicting and competing views. I was in the middle. My last year of seminary, Dr. Richard Gamble gave a lecture on circumcision. During that lecture, my eyes were opened and I changed my view. To be candid with you, I waged doctrinal warfare against the arguments for covenant infant baptism. But in the end, honestly, they wore me down. I, they won. Uh, those arguments became for me so biblically and theologically convincing and compelling that I found myself unable to adequately refute them. Uh, my Anabaptist arguments against infant baptism were increasingly lacking, they, they, they just, they didn't do it anymore. And, and I changed my view on baptism, and this is very important to, for you to understand about me, because of biblical theological interpretation of Scripture. Scripture took me to that position. I, I changed my view on baptism because of biblical theological interpretation, because of the trajectory of redemptive history, because of the striking unity between the old and the new covenants. Now, some of you believe in covenant infant baptism, and some of you do not believe in covenant infant baptism. And and I want you all to know that I, I love you all either way. I love you either way. I'm glad to be your pastor. I'm glad to be a part of our church. I'm glad to have Jerusalem Church. I'm glad you're a part of our church. I'm glad that I'm a part of your life and you're a part of mine. Baptism is not the litmus test for salvation. However, as I share my pastor's heart with you, I I do hope you come to see in Scripture the beauty and the truth of covenant infant baptism. And I hope you come to cherish it, as I do and as many do in this church. Um, If you're going to reject infant baptism. And people who do, they do it on biblical grounds. They they are arguing from scripture. If you're going to reject covenant infant baptism, make sure that you understand the biblical interpretation that you're rejecting. Make sure you understand the view of what you, you don't like. So I'm hoping that you see the beauty of it. And if nothing else, I'm hoping that you see the, the biblical interpretation, the theological framework and grid that is being used to get there. That it's not just being plucked out of thin air. It's not just being made up. It's, it's something that is a firmly biblical and scriptural thing. If you're going to reject it, make sure you know what you're rejecting. And in my experience... Many people reject covenant infant baptism because no one ever showed them the biblical rationale for it, and they likely misunderstand it, misunderstand how to get there. And that was me for so many years of my life, I just didn't understand. And, and you, you may not agree with covenant infant baptism, but please try to understand the biblical case for it and not the caricature of it. If if you're really new here, you're somewhat at a disadvantage this morning um, because this sermon is built on 14 previous sermons, especially the last one. The case for covenant infant baptism is built upon the prominent theme of covenant uh, woven throughout Scripture. So covenant baptism is built upon many other biblical truths which must be established first. And we've been spending extensive time in doing that. Here's why this matters we want to rightly understand what God has spoken in His Word. Are, are we agreed on that? I hope you are, because if not, you've got to test yourself, all right? We want Scripture to take us in the direction of what we should do. This matters because God has said something about it. And also, how should we view and treat the children of our church? That's big, Are they in the covenant of grace or are they outside of the covenant of grace? Are they part of the church or are they not part of the church? So you can tell these are huge, huge discussions and topics, big questions with big implications of how to shepherd and parent and handle the church. So this matters, folks even though I don't think it's the litmus test of salvation. I have five major points today. There's going to be more next time, and and I'm still not going to cover everything. But I hope that you begin to see the rationale, the biblical rationale for covenant baptism. Number one, there is one covenant of grace and one covenant people of God, Adam and Eve heard the gospel in Genesis 3:15. They believed and were saved. Genesis 12:15-17 fleshed out the covenant of grace. God put Abraham and his offspring into that covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant and the Davidic covenant affirm that believers and their children were in covenant with God. God put believers and their offspring into his covenant of grace. The church has existed ...since Adam and Eve. The nation of Israel was the visible church in the old covenant... ...and believers and their children were part of the church. In the new covenant, the nation of Israel was no longer the visible covenant community of faith. Local churches are. Same covenant, same group of people, believers and their children... But the old covenant church had the gospel before Christ in promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances. And the new covenant church has the gospel after Christ in the preaching of the Word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Same covenant, same church, two different dispensations and administrations. Number two... What's the difference between the Old Covenant and New Covenant administrations? And what's the similarity? The gospel of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and salvation found in Him alone was given to Old Covenant believers in the time of the law differently than the same gospel was given to New Covenant believers in the time of Christ. Same gospel. But in the time of the law, in the Old Covenant dispensation, the gospel was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances which all pointed ahead to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit used those Old Covenant types and ordinances to teach and strengthen the faith of Old Covenant believers and their children who were all part of the covenant community of faith. God put children into the church in the old covenant dispensation. But then, Jesus Christ was born. Christmas. Don't you love Christmas? Jesus Christ was born and accomplished redemption through the cross. He rose from the dead. The covenant of grace found its fulfillment in Christ. So in the New Testament, or in the New Covenant rather, The gospel was administered more simply, much more simply in the preaching of the word and the sacraments. The old covenant types and shadows were no longer necessary. Same covenant, same gospel, same believing people of God, just different times and different administrations. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says so helpfully, there are not therefore two covenants of grace differing in substance but one in the same, under various dispensations. One covenant, two different times. So then, the conclusion is this. Children were in the covenant of grace and part of the church in the old covenant dispensation. And because God has nowhere removed them, children are still in the covenant of grace and still part of the church in the new covenant dispensation. Children are believers, that is. And therefore, they're entitled to baptism, the sign and seal of covenant membership. And we'll see this uh, uh, next week, especially in, in Acts 2. Number three, what did circumcision represent in the old covenant? Well, this is what we covered last time, which was so very important um, so, you have to bring all that you learned from the last time that we were together around that, and you have to insert what you know about circumcision and what I taught before at this point. Circumcision was the sign and seal of God's gospel promises to Abraham and his offspring. It represented God's promise I will be your God, and you will be my people. Circumcision was a bloody cutting ritual. Signifying death, more precisely the death of Christ on the cross, where he died a bloody death and was cut off from God. Circumcision represented the Holy Spirit's transformation of the sinful human heart. Regeneration, new birth, spiritual change. Circumcision signified and sealed justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Circumcision was the initiating mark into the visible church in the Old Covenant in summary, circumcision signified our need of God's grace. The gospel of God's grace, and perhaps surprisingly, was the, the sign and seal of salvation by grace through faith. The, the, this sign of salvation by grace through faith was applied to whom? It was applied to believers and their children. Their children. And this was a command of God for around 2,000 years in the church under the old covenant. When those covenant children were circumcised, it did not mean they were saved. It did not even mean they would be saved. That's not what it meant. It meant that God put them into his covenant of grace and that God's promises were for them too. They were for them, for for the children of believers. Circumcision simply marked their covenant status. It was a status thing. But after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, circumcision was no longer the sign and seal of the covenant of grace. Why? Why why did it just stop? Zacharias your sinus answered this it was abolished because the timing which it signified became real. Do you understand? Jesus Christ was crucified and cut off from his people. So circumcision faded away to leave room for another sign and seal of the covenant of grace and God's covenant people. So here's the question, is there a sign and seal of the one covenant of grace in the new covenant? Number 4. What does baptism represent in the new covenant? To put it straight, baptism signifies and seals the exact same gospel truths as circumcision did. In, in reference to his coming bloody and wrath-absorbing suffering and death, Jesus said in Luke 12:50, "I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished." What baptism? God's wrath on the cross. Baptism signifies and seals Christ's bloody act of saving grace on the cross. Does that sound familiar? Romans 6, 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Just like circumcision, baptism is associated with death. It, it represents Jesus bearing the wrath of God and being cut off from God through bloody and horrific death. It's a sign and seal of God's gospel promises Fulfilled in Christ alone. It represents the Holy Spirit's transformation of the sinful human heart. Regeneration, new birth, spiritual change. Baptism signifies and seals justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Baptism signifies and seals the exact same thing circumcision did. Except, it's the new covenant sign and seal of the one covenant of grace, looking back to the cross. One covenant, one gospel, one people of God, but two different dispensations and administrations. Circumcision was replaced by baptism as the new sign and seal of God's covenant of grace. It's the new initiating mark of God's one covenant people. So understanding circumcision is essential in understanding baptism. Just like circumcision, baptism doesn't mean that the baptized person is actually saved or even will be saved. Unsaved people, you have to be honest about this, folks. I don't care where you're coming from theologically, unsaved people are baptized in Reformed and Baptist churches. People who will never see heaven are baptized. It happens. Baptism has everything to do with God's gospel promises that must be received by grace through faith. Baptism's not the cause of, of the salvation or the justification. For Baptists, baptism signifies the person's public testimony. Baptism is an act of the baptized to declare their personal commitment to God. On Thursday, I, I was listening to the radio. And I heard a well-known megachurch pastor, you probably know his name, but I won't say it, he explained the Baptist view. His emphasis is quite clear. We get his point. Uh, He was talking, in this quote that I'll read you, from God's perspective about what baptism means, and he told his people this... I want you to go public with your commitment to me. I want you to publicly profess your faith in me. I want you to identify yourself unashamedly and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. The way that we do that is through baptism. His emphasis is on our commitment to God. The Reform view is fundamentally different. You have to change the paradigm. That's not what we're saying in the Reform view. The emphasis of the Reform view is God's gracious commitment to us and our children. The, this well known pastor added this, which is disappointing to me, because I think he was unfair and misrepresented the reform view. And if you hold a view and someone's misrepresenting it, you, oh, you want to be... So I hope I'm not represent, misrepresenting the Baptist view here. You know what I'm saying? Because I want to be fair with this. So, so I just felt like he was, he was taking a cheap shot and he misrepresented the reform view, which I hold, and he left out any mention of biblical interpretation, which is what I used to get to my position, So I just felt cheated. He caricaturized the reformed view. And he said this on national radio. This is what he said. Your mom can't do this for you. Don't be like, well, yeah, my parents got me baptized when I was little. I don't want to disrespect your parents, okay? And they probably did the best they knew. But there's not a single place in all of Scripture where you see infants and water in the same chapter except Moses and the bulrushes, and nobody thinks he was getting baptized. Infant baptism is not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible, okay? There's a long history of how that got made up and invented and inserted into the church. It had to do with fear about infant mortality rates, okay? It's not a biblical thing, end of quote. I believe in covenant infant baptism, and I use biblical exegesis to get there, not infant mortality rates. He said nothing about biblical interpretation used by reformed people. But he confirmed the Baptist view. He said, it's a choice you have to make. I think it's fair to say that according to most Baptists, baptism is an act of the believer, as a statement of their commitment to God, rather than an act of God as a statement of His gospel. Covenant promises given to believers and their children. Very interestingly, this Baptistic megachurch pastor added this. Secondly, notice the order there. Secondly, it's a picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Well, I agree with them there. Absolutely, that's exactly what circumcision was about. So I hope I'm being fair here. The Baptist position puts the emphasis on the outward profession of faith made by the one being baptized. Baptism represents their commitment to God, their desire to join the church. It is an act that they are doing, not an act that God is doing. Dr. Ligon Duncan, a Presbyterian who grew up Baptist and who loves Baptists and encourages them, said it like this: "Quote: Most of our Baptist friends think about baptism as a sign of our commitment to God." End of quote. And then he explained the Reformed view, and you'll hear the difference in the views. Ligon Duncan said this. Baptism isn't fundamentally a picture of our commitment to God. It is fundamentally a picture of God's commitment to us, and that's why infant baptism is so beautiful, because you realize that that baby up there can't do anything towards God. But before that child could ever reach out to God in faith, God has already reached out to that child and placed that child in a believing home and made promises to that child that we want to see realized by that child reaching back to God in faith. But when that child does reach back to God in faith, he'll realize, or she'll realize, before I ever reached out to you, God, you had already reached out to me. It's the perfect picture of how God saves helpless, dead sinners. It's not because of something that we do, but because of something He has done. End of quote. The reformed view of baptism puts the emphasis on God's sovereign and redeeming grace and promises. The reformed view understands baptism not as an act of man, but as an act of God, as God's means of grace to His covenant people. And in my limited and imperfect and flawed and sinful opinion, reformed baptism pictures the gospel most beautifully and biblically. Most beautifully and biblically. If baptism is truly a sign of our profession of faith and commitment to God, of course infants shouldn't be baptized because they can't make credible professions of faith. But if baptism is more than that, if it has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant of grace and has become the new initiating uh, mark into the visible church, then of course infants should be baptized because children of believers have always been in covenant with God for the history of mankind since... At least Abraham. So, your view of circumcision and your interpretation of how Scripture views children of believers are hugely influential in your view of baptism. And we'll get into more of that next week. Number five Did baptism replace circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant of grace and entrance in the church? Is that accurate? Is that biblical? I'm making the argument that baptism replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the one covenant of grace. Um, Dr. Ligon Duncan summarizes the entire argument for covenant infant baptism in one long sentence. And I'll read it for you. It makes it rational and clear. So if you got lost in all of the details, maybe grab this one sentence because this pretty much encapsulates the entire view and the, ration, the biblical rationale behind it. Quote, In the, one, in, in the Old Testament... God made promises to believers and their children and gave a sign of those promises that was to be given to believers and their children. We got that, I think, so far. In the New Testament, he reiterated those same promises to believers and their children. Acts 2. Therefore, the sign of those promises should be given to believers and their children. Do you you see the, the biblical logic there? Now, is his rationale actually biblical? I say yes for various reasons. One, there is one covenant of grace, one gospel, one people of God, yet there are two dispensations. Circumcision signified and sealed God's gospel promises in the old covenant, and baptism signifies and seals God's gospel promises in the new covenant. God's gospel promises have always been for believers and their children. Or you could ask it like this, how was the church of the old covenant marked? Circumcision. Children were included in the church. How is the church of the new covenant marked? Baptism and children are still included in the church. More on that next week. Two, circumcision and baptism signify and seal the same gospel truths. One looks ahead to Christ, the other looks back. Three, circumcision and baptism alike represent faith in Christ. That's Romans 4. Four, circumcision was done away with because Christ was circumcised or killed on the cross. The old covenant was fulfilled by Christ. Additionally, Christ instituted baptism to be the new sign and seal of the covenant of grace and mark of God's covenant people. Five, the logic of Acts 2, which we'll look at next time, connects baptism to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. In other words Peter's language in that sermon in Acts 2 at Pentecost connected circumcision and baptism. But perhaps the most compelling biblical exegetical connection is Colossians 2:11 and 12. Paul wrote at a time where observing the Mosaic law including Uh, circumcision was a hugely controversial topic in the church. Some false teachers uh, said Jesus plus circumcision. And Paul's like, no, he's waging warfare against that heresy. So he said in Colossians 2 verse 10, to the church, in him you have been made complete. Complete. Then he continued the thought in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, linked to being made complete in Christ, there is a spiritual circumcision made without hands. There is a Christian circumcision This circumcision is Christ putting off the body of the flesh, or in other words, cutting off and killing the old man, the old nature, the sins of the flesh. Christ does that. And I would argue that the spiritual circumcision that Paul was referring to is at least linked to the cross, which makes it all possible. Paul likely had Christ's crucifixion in mind when he said the circumcision of Christ. Christ was bloodied, and cut off from God on the cross. Circumcision. Paul was telling the Colossian Christians, you have been circumcised of the heart. But then he adds, having been buried with him in baptism. Paul was explicitly in the text connecting circumcision and baptism. Could we say that Paul's logic was as follows? Dear Colossian Christians, You do not need to be physically circumcised because you already have received Christian circumcision signified and sealed in your baptism. If baptism signifies and seals spiritual circumcision, which is achieved by the bloody circumcision or death of Christ on the cross, then Paul's use of circumcision language takes us right back in this moment to the Abrahamic covenant as a means to understand baptism. Paul's use of, of terms here is significant. It's explicitly Old covenant, and his link between circumcision and baptism is explicit in the text as well. You can't deny it. It's right That's what he's doing. Um, baptism signified death. Look at it again. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is Christian circumcision showing death, healing, and new life. Verse 13 is key as well. It says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Again, Paul links baptism with circumcision. Dead in sin is spiritual uncircumcision. The Colossians were dead in sin. That's what they were. But God made them alive with Christ. And Paul had just said about baptism in which you also uh, were also raised with him through faith. Alive, faith. Uh, uh, y- you, you've been made new. Resurrected. Circumcision was a kind of death and resurrection. Baptism was a kind of death and resurrection. And Paul was linking them. R. Scott Clark explains it like this. For Paul, in the New Covenant... Our union with Christ is our circumcision. In baptism, we are identified with Christ's baptism slash circumcision, as it were, on the cross. The point not to be missed is that in Paul's mind, baptism and circumcision are both signs and seals of Christ's baptism slash circumcision on the cross for us. By faith we are united to Christ's circumcision and by union with Christ we become participants in his circumcision slash baptism. Because circumcision pointed forward to Christ's death and baptism looks back to Christ's death, they are closely linked in Paul's mind and almost interchangeable. Paul's point here is to teach us about our union with Christ. But along the way... We see how he thinks about baptism and circumcision, and his thinking should inform ours. End of quote. Do you think like Paul thought? Do you connect circumcision and baptism? Paul's main point was not to say baptism replaced circumcision. Don't misunderstand me. That wasn't his main point. But how Paul thinks about both as signs and seals of Christ's death and resurrection and our circumcision and baptism in Christ's circumcision and baptism tells us implicitly in the text that baptism replaces circumcision. Paul's connection of circumcision and baptism is obvious in the text. So... Baptism is the sign and seal of our being circumcised in Christ just as circumcision was the sign and seal of the same thing in the Old Covenant. R. Scott Clark added this, no one has ever been accepted by God except by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ and his benefits were illustrated by a forward-looking sign and seal under Abraham, Moses, David, and the prophets. All uh, in Christ, the fulfillment has come and we no longer have need of the bloody illustration. It has been fulfilled and replaced by an unbloody sign and seal that looks back to Christ's finished work. Saints, the beauty of covenant infant baptism is that it points believers and their children to the gospel. Reformed theology says that circumcision has been replaced by baptism. And baptism is now the sign and seal of the one covenant of grace that began in Genesis 3.15. Covenant infant baptism says, look at Christ. Look at Christ who is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise God made to Abraham is for you children of believers. Look to Christ. The, the, the gospel that baptism signifies and seals is still promised to the children of believers. Baptism continues to call our covenant children to faith in Christ. It does not mean they have faith in Christ. It does not even mean they will have faith in Christ. It means they are in the covenant of grace, and that God uses baptism to graciously call them to faith in Christ. And as they have faith in Christ, it assures them, it strengthens them, it builds them up. Oh, what a precious gift to our covenant kids. Be clear on these things. Baptism is a wonderful act of God's grace used in conjunction with the preaching of His Word to call covenant children and to call us as covenant adults to unwavering confidence in Christ. The Word and sacrament of baptism are for children of believers meant to be a great blessing to them throughout their life. Covenant infant baptism is telling our little baptized children children, as they grow up, God has made a promise to you. He promised to be your God. He promised you would belong to Him. He promised you Christ. He promised you eternal life. He promised you eternal joy. It is all yours, covenant children, when you meet the condition of the covenant of grace, which is faith. Faith. It's received by faith, not just by having water put on you. Faith. So it is true that covenant children who refuse to trust Christ should not ever expect the blessings of the covenant. They should expect the curses of the covenant. We don't presume any infant is saved. We simply trust the promises of God and baptize them because God graciously put them into His covenant and gave them His promises Consider the blessings that children of believers get, that children of unbelievers don't get. They just don't have these. They get the preaching of the word, the sacrament of baptism, which signifies and seals their covenant status. The prayer of the saints, encouragement of the saints in the visible church, which they are a part of, they belong. We want to send kids that message. They are taught the gospel at home, taught God's word at home, witness the power of God's saving and transforming grace at home. They receive loving Christian discipline connected to God's law and gospel at home. Children of unbelievers get none of these gracious things from God. But God, in His divine mercy and grace, placed covenant children in believing families and in the covenant of grace and in God's covenant people to to benefit them, to bless them with His ordinary means of grace. Covenant children are surrounded by the gospel. At every turn of Jesus Christ, by God's sovereign design, he did it for them as a way to reach out to them. That's God taking the initiative with children of believing families. Sadly, saints, some covenant children spurn God's grace, and they never believe, and they will suffer forever in hell. Some baptized covenant children will go to hell because of their persistent unbelief. But parents, parents, take heart. Take heart. Because God uses his ordinary means of grace to so often save covenant children and strengthen and sustain their faith. Don't deny them the ordinary means, God's ordinary means of grace, including baptism. Give them that which promises them grace through faith. Now we have to hit the pause button. Folks, I'm sorry, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't fit it all in. And I was like, there's really no great... Conclusion. It's just kind of done. We just have to, and then next week, we, if God tarries and I return somehow, we will continue at this point. Would you consider uh, this question? Where does Scripture explain that God removed covenant children from covenant status? Where in Scripture is that found? If this removal is not explained in Scripture, the logical conclusion is that children of believers are still in the gospel, uh, God's uh, covenant of grace, and that they're still part of the visible church. Saints, we, we need to see and treat our covenant children as God does. We we need to give them the gracious gift of baptism for their and our spiritual benefit. Let's pray. God my mind is so foggy. I just can't think right. Sin has messed me up and messed us up as a church. We we want to get this right. We want to believe what you want us to believe. And we know that there's a a great division in church history over this matter. God, my heart is to love the people. I certainly don't want to offend anybody, but I do want to uh, preach your truth as you've revealed it to me by your spirit. And could I be wrong? Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm I'm just a schmo pastor who's trying to be faithful to your word. But your spirit, God, I believe your spirit is working to bring us in greater theological unity. So, God, I'm just begging you to bring unity to our church in these matters. And that, God, where you see fit in your sovereign plan to allow us to disagree, that we would be so loving that it it just wouldn't be an issue. Sure, we have to, as a church, you know, navigate certain waters very carefully because of differing views, but I just pray that we want Jesus so much and love what the Spirit is, what love what you, by your Spirit, are doing in this church through gospel preaching and teaching and ministry, uh, that, that we would just be so captivated by Him that we could work out our differences and continue to discuss these things. This is not the final word, God, on these matters. I pray for those who believe in infant baptism that they would not be arrogant, rude, or selfish, but that they would graciously hold their position and that they would just lovingly try to present the biblical case. And I pray for those in our church that do not agree with covenant infant baptism. God, that they would feel loved, supported, That they would be open-minded to consider the biblical arguments that lead and conclude with covenant infant baptism. That you would be faithful to speak to them as well. So God, help me not to be a rude pastor, an unloving pastor, a belligerent pastor, one that beats people with truth. Humble me, God. I need you to make my foggy thinking clear. I need you to reveal to me your, your glorious truth I'm desperate, God, so I pray that you would just unite us around the gospel, and that we would understand how important baptism is, and how it can be such a gracious, lifelong gift to our kids, because the gospel is promised to them as well, and as long as they believe by your grace, they will receive all of the blessings, and I pray that a warning is heard for all of us in this sermon We don't want to be covenant breakers, God. And so I pray that you strengthen our faith and keep us close to you so that we would not wander and be cut off from your people because of unbelief. So build our belief. Give people faith, God, by your sovereign grace so that we may cherish and enjoy Jesus forever. For Christ's glory we pray, amen.